Let me pray to, as we open this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us uh, to be worshipers, that Jesus came, uh, that the Father might have worshipers, and that we might worship in spirit and in truth. And we pray today, as we, uh, uh, today and tomorrow as we study uh, your teaching about worship, that you would deepen our understanding of who you are, what you call us to be and to do, and what our worship does and how it affects the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let me start with a couple of disclaimers and or definitions. Uh, I'm used to using the word liturgy. And for a, a certain people in certain church traditions, liturgy connotes a certain kind of worship. And uh, it probably word. It connotes the kind of worship that we are, uh, that we're doing this weekend. Uh, but uh, what I want to communicate is not specifically uh, necessarily about that form of worship but rather just about worship itself. So I, I, uh, liturgy and worship, um, somewhat interchangeable. The word liturgy does connote a kind of set form uh, and uh, often connotes something very formal. Um, but uh, I think what I have, I hope what I have to say is uh, relevant to people who aren't used to talking about liturgy, but instead used to talking about worship uh, and using different terminology. Um, but I hope that, that that use of that term doesn't, isn't a stumbling block or a difficulty. Another term that I tend to use is Eucharist. It's a traditional word that's used for the Lord's Supper. Eucharist, of course, is from a Greek word that means thanksgiving. And it, uh, it's used to describe the whole event of the Lord's Supper because the prayers that, are, uh, that uh, are used in the Lord's Supper are prayers of thanksgiving. Jesus blesses the bread and gives thanks for the wine. And the church has historically picked out those elements of the entire service of communion uh, to communion itself. So uh, Eucharist is naming one aspect of the event of the Lord's Supper. Uh, you can talk, talk about it in a variety of different ways, and each of these brings out a different aspect of it. Um, but um, the, I just wanted to explain my, my use of the word Eucharist, which has um, just kind of become habitual for me. By talking about culture, I'm talking about uh, the um, patterns of life that a group adopts, the norms that they have for behavior, the uh, kinds of physical objects that they, uh, that they produce, uh, their customs, their traditions, um, their organization of time and space. Uh, so culture and creation are linked because God has created things that we transform in various ways and we, uh, we structure in various ways that creates a cultural world. Now, the world we live in is uh, largely a world that's, that we've constructed. I mean, I can see trees outside, um, but apart from the people in this room, most everything in this room is a product of human transformation of creation and not a direct, not a direct, uh, um, not a direct uh, uh, creation from God's hand. I mean, even the water that you have in your water bottles, you know, that's been produced in various ways. Uh, it's been bottled, it's been shipped. There's all kinds of human activity that goes into producing or to delivering that water to your uh, into your hand. So uh, creation and culture go together. Creation is God's, uh, God's work that's the background, the materials that we use and transform in order to, uh, in order to make culture. The other, uh, the other topic, the other theme that I'll be talking about is liturgy. Uh, and to understand what I want to say about uh, 
creation culture and liturgy, I need to explain what I mean by liturgy. I'm going to suggest that liturgy is not just a kind of uh, outside uh, gloss on natural life. Uh, it's not icing on the cake of a secular reality. It's not something we do on Sunday. Uh, we live non-liturgical lives for six days, and then we have a couple hours of liturgical life, worship life, on Sunday. Uh, I'm going to argue, rather, that creation itself has a liturgical structure and a liturgical pattern to it. Uh, I'm going to uh, suggest that that's the case in a variety of different ways. Uh, and that uh, a culture, too, has lit liturgy built into it. The, the various uh, uh, rituals that define and exhibit and kind of crystallize culture, um, it's, it's, in, it's in those rituals, it's in those liturgies that we express who we are as a people. Uh, you, you can think about you know, Fourth of July celebrations as an expression of the American character. Uh, we, it celebrates our history. Uh, we set off firecrackers because we are a people who likes to make big noises. We like to explode things. We like bright colors. Uh, we gather together. We have uh, certain kinds of food. Those, all of that, uh, that ritual, that, uh, that moment expresses uh, the character of American culture and American civilization in distinction from others. Uh, I mean, uh, you may be surprised to realize that uh, British citizens do not celebrate um, the 4th of July. Uh, they set off fireworks on Guy Fawkes Day, which is uh, celebrating the, the foiling of the plot to blow up Parliament back in, was it 1604, I think. Guy Fawkes, a radical Catholic, wanted to uh, blow up uh, a dynamite Parliament with, when the king was present in Parliament, uh, and that plot was foiled, and uh, Guy Fawkes, I'm sure, was executed. So he's still executed in effigy every year on Guy Fawkes Day, and they set off fireworks. We don't celebrate Guy Fawkes Day because that doesn't loom for us uh, in the way it does for uh, especially Protestants in, in the UK. So uh, liturgy is not something that we just do in church. It's not something that's a, a gloss or an extra to life. I'm going to argue that liturgical patterns are built into reality, into, uh, into uh, creation, uh, and they are part of culture. And so in each lecture, I'm going to be talking about some aspect of created reality. I'm going to be talking about how that aspect of created reality is transformed in uh, various ways by, uh, our, uh, by our shaping, by human shaping, by cultural activity. Uh, and then I'm going to also argue that the Christian liturgy is uh, one of the ways that we redeem, redirect, correct, glorify, complete those patterns and uh, things that are in creation that are transformed by culture. Um, even, in our fallen, even in our fallen condition, uh, we are still liturgical beings. We still, we still do things in kind of liturgical or ritual patterns. And the liturgy of the church is a, way, uh, is a gift from God, as a, as, and one of its intentions is to be uh, correcting and redirecting those distorted liturgies that make up the life of fallen human societies and fallen human beings. So the, the liturgy of the church, I'm going to argue, is uh, the way that creation and culture are restored to right order. It's a means that the Son and the Spirit use in order to restore uh, the world and to redeem it and to glorify it.
Um, to unpack the thesis, that, that's, the, that's the basic thesis of the weekend. To unpack that, uh, I want to talk a little bit about our, um, a little about Theopolis and our Theopolis motto. If you have the full logo, you have this on your, on your Psalter hymnals, your liturgy Psalters. You know what, I, you know what I'm going to say next, that, that, that don't belong to you. So the logo, it's, you know, we've got the, the cool little design logo there, but then we have Theopolis Institute under it, and then we have Bible Liturgy Culture. That's the triad. That's our tagline. Um, and the, the, the way that that's often set up is we've got the dots in between it on the logo, or periods, Bible, period, liturgy, period, culture, period. Uh, but that, uh, that punctuation is misleading because the whole point of Theopolis, the, the, the vision that drives Theopolis, is that those three things are interconnected uh, and that it's when we have biblically grounded churches who are worshiping uh, according to Scripture and uh, who are uh, proclaiming and teaching and, and preaching the Word of God in a deep way within the liturgy of the church, those are the churches that are culturally transformative. So these, those three things, Bible, liturgy, and culture, go together. So um, not, these are not just three things that we happen to be interested in, three different topics that we happen to be interested in. Uh, the, the whole vision is that they are interconnected and integrated, and they must be if the church is going to be healthy. Uh, if the church is not biblical, if it ignores the Bible or has a superficial understanding of the Bible, it can't be healthy. If it has... It could have a deep understanding of the Bible, but have superficial worship. That's not a healthy thing. Uh, and it's only when you have Bible and liturgy together that you have a church that's ready for mission, which we believe is a mission of uh, transformation of the world. Uh, Jesus has called us to disciple nations, and the churches that are effective in discipling the nations are churches that are uh, deeply grounded in Scripture and that are formed by uh, the worship of the church. But I want, to, I want to unpack exactly how that works because that gets to the thesis that I want to present. Uh, the way that we often talk about it, we, meaning we at Theopolis, uh, you take the first two of the triad, Bible and liturgy. And the way that we often talk about it is in terms of the Bible's influence on the worship of the people of God. The Bible forms the liturgy. We should worship biblically. Uh, and that's something that we'll be talking about through the course of this weekend. How does the Bible shape the way we worship? How does the Bible instruct us in how to worship? Perhaps just as importantly, or even more importantly, what does the Bible say we're doing when we gather for worship? What is, what is worship? What is the liturgy? What is, what is that event? Uh, what kind of event is it? Uh, what should be happening there? Not just, not just how do we do it. We don't just go to the Bible to get... Uh, uh, get a liturgical forms, but just uh, defining what is it we're doing. So uh, that's that's an important uh, that's an important direction. So you, you want to think of a, an arrow. The Bible uh, produces a, a deep understanding of the Bible. Uh, produces uh, faithful liturgy, faithful worship. It, the, the liturgy the, the liturgy of the church needs to be shaped by the whole of the Bible, uh, not just. Um, you know, Acts to, end of Acts 2, uh, not just a couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians. Um, the, the entire Bible is instructive to our understanding of what we're doing in worship. Uh, and that includes the Old Testament, which has a lot of instruction about 
liturgical forms, forms of worship that we no longer do, but yet are instructive for us to understand what we are doing. In order to understand what we're doing in worship, what we're doing when we sit at the Lord's table, we have to have some understanding of all the festive events of the Old Testament and all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which feed into an understanding of the Lord's Supper. So the whole Bible is shaping the way we worship and our understanding of what it is we're doing when we worship. So that's the one direction that we go. So the Bible influences the liturgy and shapes the liturgy. But it's important to see that it's a two-way street, that the liturgy is also uh, an important, uh, importantly shaping the way the Bible is used and uh, shaping the, uh, basically bringing the Bible uh, to, uh, to a kind of fulfillment. Well, that may sound odd because we're used to thinking about the Bible as Protestants, maybe particularly as American evangelical Protestants, primarily as operating in a kind of private zone of my personal uh, devotion, my personal study. And I'm by no means denigrating that. I think that's, that's important. Uh, we, should, we should be studying the Bible. We should probably, most, many of us should be probably studying the Bible and trying to understand the Bible more than we do. Uh, even if we're not theologians or pastors, we should uh, be in the Word. God has given us the gift of printed Bibles. We can all have a Bible. We all have various study tools. And God calls us to try to understand it best we can, given our other callings. Okay? Uh, I'm not denigrating that at all. But if that's all that the Bible is doing in our churches, then the Bible is not doing everything it's supposed to do. The Bible can't, come, can't complete its full work if all it, that's happening is that people are studying it in private. And you can think about just an obvious example of this. Think about your pastor. Dwayne studies uh, a text all week. He's gathering really interesting insights, powerful applications, but he refuses to share them on Sunday morning. Okay. Has the Bible had the proper effect on Christ Church carry if, if Dwayne keeps all of the riches that he's discovered in Scripture to himself? I mean, obviously not, because his whole point for studying is to share it with the congregation so that he can open up the Scriptures to the people who gather on Sunday morning. The Bible itself is not fulfilled. It's not fulfilling its... its, it's uh, its complete purpose is fulfilling one of its purposes by edifying Duane, but it's not fulfilling its complete purpose unless Duane, having been edified, edifies others. So the Bible has to be taught, read in the, in the, communion, in the community and the, and the assembly of believers in order to, for the Bible to reach its full, uh, its full and complete purpose. The Bible is given not just to form us individually, the Bible is given to form a people. And that can only happen if there is some kind of public uh, reading, some kind of public teaching, some kind of public proclamation of the word. It can only form a church, a, a particular congregation of believers, assembly of believers. It can only do that if it's done when those people are assembled place in the time that that's done is when we assemble for worship. It can, it can be doing that in other times too. I mean, there are Bible studies and other kind of informal places. Uh, but it's done uh, for in, in, in the church, it's done within that public setting. 
And so the liturgy is the context in which the Bible, the Bible uh, completes this important part of its purpose. And it, it won't complete the important part of its purpose if it's not, if it's not that. Which I think uh, um, is kind of a footnote, maybe an application. I mean, uh, that does say something about what, uh, what, we, what pastors and what churches should do in worship. Um, if the Bible's purpose is to be given to the people of God, then uh, uh, reading two lines of a text in a worship service probably isn't enough. Reading two lines of a text every... <laughs> uh, two lines of a text every, every, uh, every worship service probably isn't enough. Uh, the people need to hear more. Uh, giving a sermon that's uh, you know, reflecting on the week's news, telling an- anecdotes, cute anecdotes about your kids, uh, probably not achieving what the Bible is supposed to be achieving, is that if that's what preaching becomes. Uh, the, the, assembled, uh, the assembly of the people of God is for delivery of God's word to God's people, and that's the primary place where God's word is delivered to the people. It's the primary place where the Bible does that important people-building work and if it doesn't do it there, then it's, uh, not, it's not doing all that it should do. Um, one other way to think about this. Uh, the, the Bible, so I'm saying that the Bible shapes the liturgy. The liturgy is also the context in which the Bible achieves its full purpose. So there's a, there's a, a uh, if, you want to, if you want to diagram it, there's an arrow that's pointing in both directions between the Bible and the liturgy. Um, there's another way that that's the case. So the Bible is given to us to hear but parts of the Bible are given to us to speak and to speak as the people of God. And it's, it's uh, uh, quite an amazing thing for, that we have a God who speaks. That's, that's incredible. Um, that we have a God who not, not only made us, not only rules us, not only uh, expects things from us, but has explained himself to us and revealed himself to us. He speaks to us. But it's uh, maybe even it's as much of a uh, of a of a mystery as a uh, it's, it's just just as much a uh, a miracle that God has spoken to. God wants to hear from us, and not only is God spoken to, He receives and hears us, so that we can actually have conversation and dialogue with our Creator. Uh, but He's given us words to do that. And I'm thinking here particularly of the Psalms, but there are other places in Scripture that are written as prayers, written as songs to be spoken and sung to God. So, uh, and, there, and clearly the Psalms, some of them are, are quite obviously designed to be sung. I think the whole Psalter as a whole is designed to be sung by the people of God, not, by in, not just by individuals. The Psalter as a whole is given to the people of God to speak back to God, to sing back to God. When does that happen if it's not when people are assembled speaking with one voice back to God. So again, an important purpose of the Bible doesn't happen, doesn't get fulfilled if the Bible is just being studied and just being used in those private kinds of settings. So the context of worship is the place where the Bible fulfills these purposes. It, it all, it's not all the purpose of the Bible just in the public setting, but it's important purposes of the Bible, the, the people-building part of the Bible, and the fact that the Bible is given to us to be uh, received, uh, not just to be received, but to be spoken back to God. So Bible liturgy are mutually conditioning, as it were. 
You can't have, you can't have a, a proper liturgy unless it's shaped by the Bible. You can't have a, a, a Bible operating as it ought to be unless it has its, a prominent place in the, in the liturgy. Okay. You know, I was, I was, I was picking, on, picking on evangelicals just a second ago saying, you know, one little snippet of scripture, no script, or virtually no scripture in, uh, in sermons. I'm not just evangelicals. There are a lot of high church homilies that have very little to do with the Bible. And you think about the you could think about the condition of the late medieval church. People come into God's presence, the God who speaks. They come to meet the God who speaks, and he's speaking a different language. <laughs> you don't understand the language that he's speaking. Uh, there are vernacular homilies at certain points in the Middle Ages, but preaching is not a prominent part of worship in the Middle Ages. Uh, so the people come in to hear the, to worship the speaking God, and he doesn't speak to them. Um, the problem with the medieval mass is not that it's too liturgical that it ignores the Bible. It's just not liturgical at all, um, insofar as it excludes, the worship, uh, in, it excludes the Word, because the Word is all about God speaking to us and us speaking His Word back to Him. So the double arrow between Bible and liturgy. And I want to say the same thing is true of the second, the second two terms of, the, of, the, uh, of our tagline. Bible and liturgy mutually influence each other. Liturgy and culture mutually influence each other each other. Then um, um, when we, we, that is, we at Theopolis, when we talk about liturgy and culture or liturgy and mission, we often think about it as the liturgy as kind of the engine and the fountainhead of mission. Uh, what we do in the worship service uh, prepares us, transforms us. We encounter the Lord. We encounter the Lord in his glory and we're sent out into the world to shine that glory out in the world. We hear God's word so we can go out in the world in the next several days and speak it to people and proclaim it. Uh, we, we encounter God. We feed it, we're seated to God's table so that we can go out and open our tables as uh, in imitation of our Father who is showing hospitality to us. Go and do likewise. Show hospita- hospitality to others. And I think that's a, that is a primary uh, perspective that the Bible gives us on the, on the liturgy, what the purpose of liturgy is. That is, the liturgy is the source of the power and the life that uh, flows out in mission. Um, and there are a lot of biblical um, scenes that, uh, that, uh, that indicate this. Um, starts, starts in Genesis 2. I'm going to uh, develop this uh, in a little bit later this morning, if I, if I have time, or this afternoon. But the Garden of Eden is a, the original sanctuary, it's the original place where Adam and Eve would gather, uh, come together in God's presence, meet with God. Uh, and from the, from the Garden of Eden, we have uh, rivers flowing. We have the river beginning in Eden, flowing through the garden. And from the garden, it splits into four rivers and goes out to the corners of the earth. So the place of worship, the place where Adam and Eve encounter God, is the, not the source of the river. That's uh, up, up uh, uh, higher up in Eden. But it's they're encountering him in the, in the garden, and from there, that influences of, those, uh, of, of what happens in the garden goes out to the four corners of the earth. And that's a, that's a constant image throughout the Bible of the influence of what happens in the sanctuary. The sanctuary is a, is a source of living water. Uh, from Eden on, whenever you have a sanctuary, there's some kind of water available, and frequently and some kind of image of water flowing out. Uh, you don't have that so much in the tabernacle, but when Solomon builds the temple, uh, 
he doesn't just have a, a laver, but he's got a great bronze sea set up on the backs of 12 bowls. There's a lot of water in the temple courts. Uh, and then you have 10 uh, water stands uh, out in the courtyard of the temple. They're designed so that they look like chariots. They probably didn't move around, but they have wheels like chariots. They have panels on the sides with uh, cherubim and other figures on the sides. And if you were to glance at them, you would say, well, that looks like a, that looks like it's mobile. It looks like a chariot. But what they're for is to hold basins of water, which are used, and I always forget which is which. One of the, the sea or the, uh, the basins in the, in, the, in, the, in the water chariots, one or the other is used to wash sacrifices. The other is used for the priest to wash. They're, they're two different uses of the water, and I don't remember which is which. But the image is of water starting from the temple, and because they've got wheels, it looks like water is being carted out from the temple, flowing out from the temple, and going out from the temple out to the world, to the Gentiles, which is the whole purpose of the temple. I mean, Jesus didn't invent the phrase, uh, this is a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting Isaiah. And that's, it, Isaiah is not the first to think that, because the dedication of the temple, Solomon is praying. When people from other nations pray toward this house, uh, then hear and uh, respond. So from the beginning, the temple is a house of prayer for all nations. It's a, it's, a, it's a place where toward which Israel and the nations are to pray, and it's a source of living water that's supposed to flow out to the nations. Israel is that living water. They're supposed to meet with God at, at, the, ta- at the temple. They're supposed to be going out from the temple in order to uh, bring the blessing of uh, Abraham to the nations. This gets picked up later in Ezekiel the famous scene in Ezekiel 47. Uh, You have uh, a river flowing. The river is, first of all, just ankle deep. It gets wider and deeper as it goes. It gets knee deep and then waist deep, and then it can't be forded. It keeps flowing all the way through the land, all the way to the uh, Dead Sea. When it empties into the Dead Sea, the freshwater river uh, refreshes the Dead Sea and brings all the fish to life as it flows it fertilizes the land, and the land becomes fr- uh, fruitful. Trees begin to grow along the side of the river, and uh, fruit is appearing on the trees. It's the vision of the power of God, the spirit of God, the people of God uh, that are transforming the world and renewing it. And it all begins at the temple. That river begins as a trickle coming out underneath the doorway of the temple. Ezekiel has seen this gigantic temple vision. He's uh, described it in enormous detail. And once he's described the temple, then he sees a little trickle coming out from the inner sanctuary, trickles out underneath the door of the temple, out through the courtyard, out past the courtyard, out into the land, and then out to the Dead Sea. Uh, The source is the temple. The source is the place where Israel meets with God, but that's, it's it's not, the water is not remaining in the temple. The water is flowing out and the water that flows out from the temple is renewing the world. Now, that's an image of the effect that the worship of God and the people of God who encounter God in worship are to have on the world around us. Uh, and of course, that gets picked up at the end of the Bible, too, with this vision of the New Jerusalem, uh, which uh, is, uh, I think, a, a vision of what the church is intended to be, not just a vision of the final state of all things, but a vision of what the church is called to be. And the there, too, we have a water, a river flowing through the city. And there, too, the river is producing 
uh, trees and fruits. The tree of life is springing up alongside this river. Um, so that's a constant image, and that's the, the liturgy as the source of world renewal, or in the terms I've been using, the, the, the liturgy is the source of the renewal and the transformation of culture. Um, so that's one direction. I want to argue, uh, too, and this is a large part of what I'm trying to communicate through the weekend, I want to argue, too, that the, the direction goes the other way. The liturgy flows out into the world. The world also comes and occupies the liturgy. Okay. Culture comes into the liturgy. So, again, if you're looking at the Theopolis tagline, you can draw a double arrow, not just between Bible and liturgy, but a double arrow between liturgy and culture. Um, I've already described what I mean by, by culture. Um, particular organization of time and space, particular kinds of things that are produced, particular norms of life, uh, you know, particular do's and don'ts. Uh, Philip Reef, 20th, a 20th century, um, I guess he, I don't know what he is. Would you call him a psychologist, social philosopher? Uh, he describes human cultures as being founded on interdictions, on, on negative rules, thou shalt not. Uh, you have human behavior has no limits. We we can uh, virtually no limits. We we do all kinds of things. You don't have a culture if everybody's just doing what they want to do. You have to have some kind of common, accepted interdictions. You have to have some no's, and that's what forms a culture. It's those kinds of human behavior that are prohibited, and then you have a group of people whose behavior is predictable because certain things are just unthinkable, um, and uh, you, can, you, can, uh, you, can expect, you expect you know that uh, when you sit down uh, at your neighbor's dinner table, he's not going to pick up the knife. He's going to pick up the knife to cut the roast and not to decapitate you. You have some, some confidence that uh, he's not inviting you over to, to, uh, to murder you and to eat you, because that's just unthinkable, right? Um, so that you have certain norms of behavior, thou shalt nots that are uh, that are that make a culture. Reef describes our contemporary culture. He was writing in the 1990s and earlier. He describes contemporary culture as an anti-culture. You can't have a culture that's based on the primacy of possibility, that just leaves every option open. You don't know <laughs> when you sit down at your neighbor's dinner table. Uh, if you don't have any limits, you don't know what he's going to do with that knife. Um, so um, that's part of, part of, part of what makes a, a, a particular culture particular is that it has certain kinds of, uh, certain kinds of uh, norms that it adopts. It also has a certain language. That's probably the most obvious uh, indicator of a, a cultural group. We talk about linguistic groups uh, as a way of talking about different cultural groups. Uh, uh, the, the, the languages provide the way for a particular group to talk about and to operate within the world, to communicate with each other. Uh, language is the, uh, the uh, common practice that enables all other common practices. We can't do anything as groups unless we can communicate with each other, and we do that through a, through a common language. Now, in all of those ways, or in most of those ways, I want to suggest that uh, culture not only predates the liturgy, but culture is brought into the liturgy. By predate, I mean this. So the, the church goes into a new missionary area. Church has never been there before. It goes into a, 
a, an unreached people group. That unreached people group already has a language. The church may come in, you know, if you're Wycliffe, you may come in and you may make the language a written language for the first time so you can have Bibles. But there's language there already. If there's a group, then there's a language. Uh, and there's certain norms of behavior that are part of it. There's certain customs. There's certain customs of dress. They uh, almost certainly have uh, particular ways of organizing time. Uh, they have uh, certain kind of festivals and certain, uh, certain ways of keeping, keeping time. Uh, they produce certain kinds of products and not others. They have certain ways of designing their buildings, whether out of necessity because they have only certain materials available or uh, probably both necessity and out of some kind of artistic, aesthetic uh, desire to express something, uh, some kind of beauty in the buildings that they're, that they're making. That's already there. There's a culture in place. And the liturgy comes into that uh, and begins to operate. And when it begins to operate, it doesn't operate uh, with a completely uh, uh, antithetical set of practices. If it's going to communicate at all, it at least has to adopt the language of the people that are there. So, right, that's the first, uh, you know, if, before you go to, uh, on a, as a missionary to a new people group, you have to learn something of the language. That's one of the prerequisites. Or you go there and you spend a couple years in order to learn the language so you can begin to communicate the gospel. And then if you gather some people who are converts, then you're bringing them together and you're worshiping together and you're using the language that was already there in order to worship. Okay. So the, it's not just the liturgy is entering into that culture that's already pre-existing. In order to function at all, the liturgy has to let the culture into the liturgy. Now, there are ways to prevent this, right? You could do the liturgy in Latin. No matter where you are, you could do it in Latin. And then you keep any problems of infiltration at bay, you know, any problems that the, the language coming in from outside might corrupt your worship, you keep that to the side because you're, you've got a fixed liturgy and this is just the way, and if you want to participate, you're just going to have to watch and uh, kind of, you know, get what you can or you have to learn some Latin in order to find out what's happening. Protestants don't do that. Protestants rightly don't do that. Um, we have our own ways of kind of protecting the, the space of liturgy from cultural contamination. Uh, in in uh, the Reformed uh, tradition, we have uh, uh, sharp prohibition and sharp interdictions against uh, any kind of, or most kinds of artistic expressions within, within a, other than music, but nothing on the walls. Architecture has to be as plain as possible. Um, and I think there's, uh, uh, among other things, that's partly based on I think a misunderstanding of some biblical texts, but uh, it's also I think the instinct is to try to keep from keep the worship space from being contaminated. I'm saying that that contaminated contamination contamination, if you want to call it that, the infiltration is inevitable, and it's actually necessary if the liturgy is going to do what it's supposed to do, which is to uh, be a source for transformation of culture, and not just a source. But the liturgy itself is an event of transformation. The liturgy itself is the first Christianization of the culture in which it exists. And again, uh, I'll be illustrating this in various ways throughout the course of the weekend, but probably the easiest, way to, the easiest example to think about is language. So 
in or, again, in order for the liturgy to do what it's supposed to do, which is to be a moment of communion and communication between God and, and the people of God, it has to be done in the language of the people that are there. And that is a, in a language that the church probably didn't invent and it didn't bring it with them. They found it. So there's that infiltration of the language. But think about what happens when a new language gets used in a liturgy. Now the language is being used to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The name Jesus probably didn't exist. You've got to make the name Jesus in that new language. Perhaps there's no concept of sin, or perhaps there's a distorted concept of wrong somehow that's embedded in the language. You've got to begin redefining things in order to communicate what the Bible communicates. Uh, by being used in the liturgy, the language is being changed. The language is being used for the, the, for the primary purpose for which it was given. Why did God make us uh, linguistic beings? Uh, well, so we can communicate with each other, surely, but primarily so we can communicate with him. He is a speaking God. We're speaking beings so we can talk back to God. And for the very first time, if you have a completely unreached group with their own language, for the very first time, their language is reaching its actual created purpose, which is to be a language of prayer. Not just a language of prayer to any God, but a language of prayer to the living God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes a language of praise to the true God. It, uh, it, this language begins to name the true God. It didn't do that before. And it's doing that, it's doing that hopefully in all kinds of ways outside of the liturgy, but it does that first within the liturgy. The liturgy is not just the source of cultural transformation that happens outside the liturgy, but the liturgy is the first moment of the transformation of the world, the first moment of the transformation of culture. Okay, and I'm going to be talking about this, that same kind of pattern with regard to place and space and architectural design. Right? There's already buildings when, you, when a church moves in. There's already buildings. Uh, but now these buildings are going to be used for a different purpose, and that means they're going to be uh, renewed. They're going to be uh, influenced by Scripture and by the purpose, you know, by, by liturgy. Time is going to be reorganized because time is now going to be organized around the worship of God and organized around celebrations of Christian festive, uh, festivals rather than the previous uh, pagan festivals. Uh, I'm, uh, sacrifice is the other topic that I'll talk about this weekend, and I think sacrifice is also an inevitable aspect of culture. So my, my argument is that liturgy is only transformative if it is uh, permeable to the culture outside. That sounds strange because we want to keep the, keep the liturgy pure. So it, it sounds strange to say we need to let the, the world into the liturgy. And there's certainly ways that we need to keep the world out of the liturgy. We need to, the liturgy again needs to be biblical. What we say in the liturgy needs to be rooted in scripture. What's taught in the worship needs to be rooted in the liturgy. Um, uh, and so, and there's all kinds of ways that the world can uh, uh, can truly contaminate, in a bad sense, can contaminate the liturgy that we need to be on guard against. But unless the liturgy is permeable and open to the uh, infiltration of the culture around it, the liturgy doesn't do what the liturgy is supposed to do, because the liturgy is there to bring bring the world in, 
in order to transform it, to redirect it, to correct the bad language, to redirect the language to the worship of the living God, to uh, uh, transform the language so that it speaks truly of the world and of God. And that's happening in the liturgy, uh, first of all. So um, that is the that is the thesis for the weekend. There are judgment calls to be made at various places. Um, I mean, are there, uh, we're going to be talking about place, are there architectural forms that would be inappropriate to use in a, for a liturgy? And, and you would say, well, we don't want to bring the, we don't want to bring this architectural form into, and use that for our worship space if, if we can help it, because it uh, would misdirect what we're trying to do. Um, but I think that, um, uh, I guess I, I do want, the, I, the Bible has a, has a, has a leading directing role in this. So uh, every culture has customs of greeting. Um, we have customs of greeting. Uh, I think the Bible does teach certain customs of greeting, certain ways of saying hello, not just, uh, the, not just the, uh, uh, the greeting with the holy kiss, but um, I mean, what do we actually say when we, when we uh, greet people and when we say goodbye to people? Uh, do we say things like, be safe? Um, which has become uh, the uh, the common the common departure uh, saying over the last year and a half, uh, or do we say the Lord be with you or Lord's blessings? Do we do we express it that way? And the Bible has um, uh, has various kinds of greeting phrases that uh, I think are uh, would be good for us to get habituated to using. So I want the Bible to have a have a leading role, uh, and but there, I recognize that there are judgment calls to make in. In various uh, in various places, music would be another one. Would be uh, to what extent can we bring that in, bring musical styles into the church from the culture around us? I, I should say I'm not, I'm not really talking about accommodation. Um, I'm not try- saying that the liturgy needs to be changed or a- adjusted in order to to uh, in order to make sense to the people. I'm saying it's just inevitable that uh, the culture comes in. People come in with their culture. People come in with already uh, certain habits, uh, and the liturgy is there, I think, to transform those primarily and to correct them, uh, uh, not to try to uh, uh, adjust itself to the world. It's just, it just in, it's impossible to avoid the world coming in. I don't know if I'll get through all this um, today uh, or this morning, but um, I'll, I'll start this uh, this uh, discussion of place, which is somewhere on your, hope, I hope that's somewhere on your first page of notes. Yeah, oh good. I'm still, I'm still running according to my planned, uh, according to my plan. So uh, I'll, I'll get started with this at least, and then if, we, if I run out of time, we'll just uh, leave the remainder of this opening lecture to this afternoon and try to catch up then. And maybe I'll be playing catch up the whole weekend. But we'll see. I want to talk about uh, space, liturgical space, um, how we think about space in general, place. This is, uh, again, one aspect of culture. Every culture has a particular organization of space, particular design not only of buildings, but particular ways of organizing those uh, spaces. I mean, uh, certain cities that uh, that are organized around Parks, right? So they're trying to trying to have some kind of natural setting within 
the concrete and, uh, and steel and glass of, of the city. That's a particular way of organizing space. Of course, you can think of perverse examples of how space is organized. I mean, all the uh, various ways that uh, 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 the U.S. For, for generations maintained racial separations in particular cities. You know, certain, certain parts of the city were not welcome to blacks. Uh, and those, were, uh, those lines were drawn legally. Those lines were drawn culturally. Um, in Birmingham, uh, we have a, there's a, a period of time when Birmingham, uh, Alabama was known as Bombingham uh, because uh, there was a, a mixed race neighborhood, a, a neighborhood that was between a white neighborhood and a black neighborhood. Blacks were buying houses. Uh, certain whites in Birmingham didn't want them there. And uh, there were 40 or 50 bombings over the course of a decade and a half. Um, that were never in solved, probably never really investigated. Uh, that's, that's not a, that, there was no law preventing blacks from buying those houses, but um, people just didn't. There was, a, there was an enforcement, uh, an informal enforcement. So that's a perverse organization of space. But every culture has some kind of organization of space. Certain people live in certain areas of the city, certain people, uh, other people live in other areas, whatever the principle of that is done, certain kinds of buildings are in the center, the focal point of the city, certain kinds are marginal, right? The, uh, the medieval town, which it, with its center maybe on a monastery or on a cathedral, um, the uh, uh, modern American city where uh, you can't see the uh, churches because uh, the uh, office buildings are towering over them. Um, uh, that's 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 an organization of space that's saying something about our priorities and values. What is what is it that we want to be most prominent in our cities? Uh, those are the kinds of things I'm talking about with the organization of space. Every culture has that, and I want to think about how uh, how churches should think about uh, not just about the cultural organization of space, but churches should think about their own uh, their own spaces and buildings, uh, and how we should uh, how we should design those, and why we should design them the way we do. Um, but I want to start by talking about creation because that, I think that, that's an important setting for understanding what liturgical spaces are for. Um, in, the creation, in, in, in creating the world, God creates uh, a three-story universe. He divides uh, the waters above and below and puts a firmament between, which he calls heaven. You've got a land below, and then he separates the waters, on the, uh, waters from the waters on the land so that land appears and then the sea is beneath them, so you have uh, heaven, earth, and sea. That's the summary picture of the, bio, uh, of the universe that's found all the way through the Bible. Uh, don't make any image or make any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. Uh, sometimes it, the, the summaries uh, of uh, cosmos in the Bible are a little more complicated, but that's, that's the basic outline. I think it's also the case that God creates the world as a temple. Uh, this has been a, a theme of some recent work on the creation account, uh, partly by comparing it to other uh, ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, accounts of creation, which are about uh, the creator or the shaper of the world, the Nebuchadnezzar shaping the world, shaping the world into a, uh, a place for him to occupy. Uh, but that is found also in the Bible, I think, I think it's implicit in Genesis 1, but when we read Genesis 1 in the light of later parts of the Bible, then we can see that Genesis 1 is anticipating these sanctuary constructions 
uh, later on in the Bible. So for example, when we get to Exodus and we have the account of the tabernacle, um, uh, we'll look at this in, in, the, in the discussion session later this morning, but uh, God gives, uh, there's several chapters long uh, description of what's going to be in the tabernacle, how the tabernacle is going to be designed. I read a little bit of it at Matins this morning. The collection of the materials, the curtains that are going to make, the furnishings that are placed in the tabernacle, the, the divisions of the tabernacle, uh, the, the uh, priest's robes, all these different things are going to be designed. And there are uh, a number of chapters in Exodus that describe this. And these chapters are laid out, uh, as many have noted, in a sequence of seven different speeches. So between Exodus 25 and Exodus 31, uh, the phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, or Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, occurs seven times. And the last time it occurs is uh, at the end of chapter 31 where Yahweh gives, reiterates the Sabbath command. So you have a seven speech, God is speaking seven times, a seven speech section that culminates with a Sabbath command. Uh, the sixth speech is a, a designation of Bezalel and Aholiab as the spirit-endowed wise men, the skilled workers who are going to make all this stuff for the tabernacle. Uh, in other words, specially endowed human beings who are going to, are going to construct things. Um, so you have at least those hints, and I think you could find more, we, we could find more if we took more time to do it. At least those hints that the construction of the tabernacle is being laid out as a kind of new creation. God spoke the world directly into existence at the beginning through seven days of speaking. And now he's speaking a microcosm, a small world, the tabernacle, not directly into existence. God doesn't speak seven, these seven speeches and the poof. The tabernacle, it's not like the tabernacle just poofs into existence. He speaks. Uh, Moses receives the pattern. He hears the words. He delivers the words to the workmen, and they make it. So you have a mediated creation, but it's still created according to God's word. It's a human beings creating according to God's word and making something like a microcosm of the universe. Three zones, like the three-story universe. A heaven zone, which is the most, the most holy place. Uh, you have a, uh, uh, an earth zone, and then the world outside the tabernacle is the sea, if you will. So you have a three-zone uh, uh, microcosm that's set up when the tabernacle is finished. Okay. So if the tabernacle is being uh, described... Uh, as if it were a new creation, then we can reason backwards and think, well, the creation must have been a, a sanctuary of some sort when God first created it. So that, that, that uh, connection between the, the uh, later sanctuary construction and the, and the uh, creation account gives us that link. We also have uh, the description of the actual construction of the tabernacle also picks up on patterns from Genesis 1. This is from... Uh, Exodus 40, the final chapter of Exodus. Uh, and this is now describing, after uh, a lengthy description of the tabernacle, then the golden calf incident, and another lengthy description of the tabernacle. Now Moses is finally building it. Beginning of verse 17. It came about in the first month of the second year, on the first of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets, set up its boards, inserted its bars, and erected its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle 
and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, so what's happening there? The tabernacle is a tent. Talks about the tent here, the different layers of the tent. There's several different layers on top of it. But it also has a wooden frame. Uh, the wood is overlaid with gold, and it has sockets at the bottom, so you can set them in the sockets, and then there are bars that hold the pieces of the walls together. So it's, it's not just a fabric tent, but it's also it's a fabric tent that has these wooden walls around it. What, uh, what Moses has done in the first part of the uh, first part of constructing it is set up the form. He set up those, uh, those uh, um, boards, the bars, the sockets, and then the tent over top of it. And then beginning of verse 20, he took the testimony, probably the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and put it in the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony just as the Lord had commanded Moses. What is he doing now? So he's set up the, the form of the tabernacle and now he's putting the first piece of furnishing inside the most holy place, which is the ark. Putting the screen in verse 21 is actually what creates the most holy place. You make a distinction between the inner sanctuary and the outer sanctuary, the inner sanctuary containing the ark. And then verse 22, he put the table in uh, the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil. And he sent the arrangement of the bread on, uh, in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So he's still doing it according to the Lord's command. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lighted the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he placed the golden altar of the tent of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned a frangued incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then he's going to put, verse 21, he put the veil of the door of the tabernacle. That's the veil on the out, outer door, doorway that separates, the doorway that separates the courtyard from the first sanctuary, the first part of the sanctuary, which is the holy place. So now he's got these two, he's put up these two zones, but he's filled in these zones with, in the, in the holy place, the table, the lampstand, and the altar. And then once he put the veil and separated out the ark, uh, uh, the court rather, he's going to put the uh, altar of burnt offering, altar of ascension, verse 29, uh, and he offers burnt offerings and meal offerings on it, places the labor between the tent of meeting and the altar, uh, and then Aaron and his sons are brought, and they're ordained. So the stuff is taking place in the courtyard, and he's filling in the courtyard. So uh, in a very broad sense, he's following the pattern of creation. You probably have seen these outlines of Genesis 1 that, first of all, talk about the first three days, primarily days of forming, where God is shaping the universe, so heaven above, earth beneath, and waters under the earth. And then in the middle of day three, he starts filling it, Fills it with plants first, the land with plants. Then he fills the sea with fish. Fills the heavens, rather, in day four with the, with the sun, moon, and stars. He fills the sea with fish, creates birds on day five, then land animals on day six. So you have this uh, forming and then filling movement in the creation account. Moses is replicating that with this small-scale world, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, first forming it and then filling it in with all the things that God has told him to put in there. And then the chapter ends with the Lord descending from the mountain. Verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud was, had settled on it. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel set out. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. 
So at the end of forming and filling, the Lord uh, takes his place above the cherubim in the most holy place. Uh, the, the ark is the Lord's throne. When the Lord in his glory comes on to, uh, into the most holy place and fills it with his glory and is seated above the cherubim, he's assuming his throne. He's taking his rest. This is a Sabbath image. So Moses constructs the tabernacle, forming, then filling, and then the Lord takes his rest inside this uh, this sanctuary. So that again is a, is an example, another uh, another uh, illustration of how the building of the tabernacle, the first of Israel's sanctuaries, is uh, mimicking and replicating the building of the world in in uh, Genesis one. Moses in, is doing what God did. What Moses produces is a sanctuary. Uh, the uh, the implication is that what God produces is also a sanctuary. So the world is a temple. It's not just a three-story house, but it's a three-story house where God dwells, which makes it a temple. And it's a three-story house where God places his image. Uh, again, uh, a number of, uh, uh, many commentators have noted this, but when you, uh, uh, when you look at temple building events in the ancient world, uh, the king would build the temple. The climax of the temple building uh, 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 sequence would be the placement of the, the god inside his house. A temple is a house for a god. And uh, the god would be placed inside his house in the form of a, uh, an image. You know the god is in the house because the image is there. The image is uh, probably not just a symbol of the presence of the god, but it's uh, somehow charged with the uh, the uh, the presence of the God. It's, uh, it, uh, it, the, the God is uh, somehow attached to the image that's placed there. Well, God is doing the same thing. At the climax, after he's built this three-story house, after he's filled it with all these other things, then he puts his image in the center of, his, of this cosmic house. Uh, the image that he places is a living image. Uh, it's the uh, image of God, man, male and female, uh, and he is uh, setting up a, a sign of his presence in his house, his cosmic house, uh, by placing man at the center in the Garden of Eden. And human beings are not just there to uh, designate and symbolize God's presence, but they're there in order to be caretakers of God's cosmic house, and not just caretakers to maintain it, but uh, from the beginning, Adam and Eve and all humanity are there to uh, to have dominion, to subdue the earth, to transform it, to glorify it. if we look at the full scope of the biblical story, the Bible moves from a glorious creation, uh, a glorious uh, Im- implicit temple, to a glorified city temple at the end. That's, what, that's where things are moving. And human beings are uh, God's agent for, uh, for making that happen. Human beings are building the world that uh, God created, which is already a temple setting, into a more glorious temple where... Uh, they dwell along with God. Uh, as his image, they, are, they, they occupy the temple along with the God who occupies the temple. And that means everything in the creation is also designed for a kind of cosmic liturgy. Everything in creation is, exists so that it can be fulfilled in the worship of God. We exist so that we can worship God. Uh, grain exists so that it can be made into bread, so that it can be part of a, uh, a Eucharistic celebration. Grapes, God created vines and grapes so that they can be fulfilled not just in wine, that's what every little grape aspires to, 
but uh, the, the really spiritual grapes aspire not just to be wine, but to be communion wine. Okay. So that, that means this world, the things that are in this world, be, are taken up, transformed by human labor, and brought into the worship of God. Uh, that's that's the, uh, the, what's, what's true of grain and grapes is true of everything that God made. Everything is designed to come to its fulfillment in the liturgy, and human beings are the ones who make that happen. Um, and one other aspect to the original creation, I, I think I'll just uh, end with uh, talking about this for a while, and then we'll take a break and come back with the discussion. Uh, one other aspect of the uh, original sanctuary, original temple uh, world of the creation. God creates a cosmic temple. Human beings are supposed to transform this temple into something even more glorious. How, are they, how do they know the pattern, uh, to use the language of Exodus, how do they know the pattern uh, they're supposed to use? What's the, what's the template? What's the end or telos of their building? What are they supposed to build? And I think that the answer to that in the original creation is the garden. Within this cosmic temple, God creates a focused sanctuary that is the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is, uh, I, I said this uh, earlier, but uh, I'll spend some time p- filling this out. The Garden of Eden is the original sanctuary for man. It's not, just, it's not a home, primarily. It's a place for God to be with his people. And again, the reasoning for this comes from looking at the garden in the light of the rest of the Bible and how the rest of the Bible picks up garden motifs and applies them to uh, sanctuaries. Sanctuaries are reconstituted gardens. Sanctuaries are uh, uh, recoveries of Eden, partial, temporary recoveries of Eden. The tabernacle is a partial and temporary recovery of Eden. Every time Abraham set up an altar in an oasis, that was a partial and temporary recovery of Eden. The temple is a partial, temporary recovery of Eden until Jesus comes and takes us uh, by his spirit into the heavenly sanctuary. But the garden is the model for all of those. And features of the garden get taken up into all the later sanctuaries. That's, again, that's how we know that the garden itself is a, is a sanctuary. Uh, what, what particularly do I mean? Well, uh, the Garden of Eden is, uh, is on a mountaintop. We know that, uh, we could infer that from Genesis 2, but we know that explicitly from Ezekiel 28, which talks about the mountains of Eden uh, and, des- and describes... Uh, a, uh, a being, uh, uh, talking, he's talking about the king of Tyre, or the prince of Tyre, on the mountains of Eden, but uh, he still describes uh, Eden as being on a mountaintop. Uh, all other sanctuaries on mountain, are on mountaintops. Um, when uh, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, he goes up on Mount Moriah. Uh, when uh, uh, Solomon builds the temple, the temple is built up on uh, the same mountain, Mount Moriah, on the mountains of Jerusalem. Uh, even when uh, sanctuaries are not literally uh, high places, uh, they are symbolically high places, and at least worship is taking place on a little mini high place, which is the altar. You build a little, a little mountain and then sacrifice on top of the little mountain. If you can, you go up on a big mountain and you build a little mountain on top of the big mountain and you sacrifice on top of the little mountain that's on top of the big mountain. That's on top of the world. <laughs> the house that Jack built. So mountains are, mountains are physically closer, right, to the sky, and so appropriate for getting close to God, appropriate as a symbol of climbing up into the presence of God. You're getting up into heaven, and sanctuaries on, are on mountaintops. 
and uh, uh, represent mountains. So the fact that Eden is on a mountaintop is an indication that it is a sanctuary environment. Um, the uh, the uh, uh, Garden of Eden is east in Eden, according to Genesis 2.8. It's east in Eden. That means that Eden is a larger land of which the garden is a part. The garden is on the eastward side of this larger territory. It's east, and the gate of the garden is on the east side of the garden. We know that from the end of Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, they go out to the east, and cherubim are stationed at the eastern gate to prevent Adam and Eve from getting back into the garden. So the orientation of, if, you, if you're outside the garden and you want to come into the garden, you're always moving west, east to west. If you're being cast out of the garden out, which is what happens to Adam and Eve, they're being cast out from the garden out toward the east. The, the, the front gate of the garden is on the east. And that is the orientation of every sanctuary in the Bible. Every sanctuary in the Bible has an east-west axis. And if you're moving from the courtyard into the most holy place, from a distant, uh, from a place more distant from God, toward the glory of God that's enthroned in the most holy place, you're moving from east to west. If you're excluded from the sanctuary, from the courtyard, then you're excluded off to the, uh, you're cast out of the eastern, uh, eastern gateway. So that orientation is uh, an indication, again, a, a, a parallel analogy between the garden and later sanctuaries. And then you also have the fact that the cherubim are set up on the eastern, at the eastern gate. It's first mention of cherubim in the Bible, and they're guardians of the sanctuary, gardens, guardians of the garden, I should say. Uh, the other places where you find cherubim, they're always associated with sanctuaries, either the earthly sanctuaries or they're in the heavenly sanctuary surrounding the Lord's heavenly throne. So the, the ark is a, is a cherubim uh, throne. Yahweh is enthroned on the wings of the cherubim, like a, an ancient king would be enthroned on the back of a, above the wings or on the wings of a, of a, of a uh, uh, sphinx throne, for example. You have some kind of combination being that forms the throne. God is the one who does that first because he's enthroned above the cherubim, and then human kings imitate the God who is enthroned above the cherubim. So the fact that those cherubim are out there at the east gate preventing entry is, uh, again, a parallel between the garden and later sanctuaries and an indication that the garden is the original sanctuary. Uh, there are other things we could talk about. One last point, the task that Adam given in, is given in the garden is a priestly task. Genesis 2.15, the two verbs that are used there are both verbs that are used specifically for Levites, they're to guard or keep and to serve uh, the garden. Uh, priests and Levites are guardians of the sanctuary, literal guardians. They prevent people from outside getting into the garden, uh, into the sanctuary. Um, they serve the sanctuaries. They do the rituals and, and uh, offerings of the sanctuary. Uh, and that's Adam's original task in the garden. If he's given this task as a priest, then the garden in which he's uh, operating and serving is a sanctuary. So uh, several things I want to bring together. It, uh, again, to remind you what we've done so far. I've argued that the cosmos is a temple. Within the cosmic temple, God has set up the garden as a sanctuary uh, that is fulfilling a number of different purposes. And uh, the reason for elaborating on this is because I think all of those purposes that are there for the garden in the original 
in the original creation are purposes of uh, liturgical space throughout the history of Israel and into the Christian church. The, uh, the garden is a place, first of all, where Adam and Eve commune and meet with God. That's where God comes to meet with them. It's a place where they commune with God uh, over food. There's trees there. It's one thing I didn't mention, but uh, I'll talk about this tomorrow morning. But uh, uh, in the Bible, every time you worship, you come with food. There's no worship without food in the Bible. If you're, if you're offering a sacrifice, you've got things that you would normally eat. You might give it all to God, or you might give part to God and you would eat some, but it's still food stuff. There, there is no worship without food in Scripture. Uh, and that begins in the garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're offered the tree of life. They can eat from the tree of life. God meets with them. They commune with him, and he communicates his life to them. So that's, that's one of the purposes of the, the original liturgical space, which is the garden. But that liturgical space is not just a place for them to commune, but it's also the place where that gives them a taste for the future form of the whole cosmic temple. The whole cosmic temple is supposed to one day be like the garden. The task of humanity, the task of Adam and Eve and all their descendants, is to identify the world. Okay? Uh, to make the world like the garden. To make it fruitful. To make it flourish. To make it glorious. To make the whole world a place of communion with God. To bring everything in the world into God's presence uh, as a part of a cosmic liturgy. So by being in the garden, and again, I want to apply this to all liturgical spaces, both in the Old Testament and now in the Christian church, by being in the garden and communing with God, they're getting, they're communing with God, but they're also getting a taste of the destiny of the world, which means that uh, the design of those spaces, this is, true, this is true of the liturgical spaces of the Old Testament. I, I'm arguing it should be true of the liturgical spaces of the Christian church. The design of those spaces gives the, the very physical design, the physical patterns, the formation, the materials that are used, the way those materials, the, the furnishings that are used, that all gives a foretaste of the world as it one day will be. A, the destiny of the world is foreshadowed by what happens, not by, just by what happens in the liturgical space, but by the liturgical space itself, okay? So you could, a couple of, couple of more, maybe more concrete ways to think about it. Uh, we should think about what it would mean for somebody to walk into a, your church and think, this reminds me of Revelation 21. Does it? Uh, probably not. Should it? I think in some way it must, it, it should. Or think about it this way. This is a, a kind of a classic description of the effect of liturgical space. Um, Prince Vladimir, not Russian. Okay, the Ukrainians would have my head if I said he was Russian. He's in Kiev. He's the Prince of Kiev in 988. He wants to adopt a religion. So he sends a delegation off to different religions, uh, different places to find out what religion he's going to adopt. Uh, Islam, well, they can't drink. A non-starter for the people of Kiev, if you can't drink. Um, Jews, doesn't want to become a Jew. Jews have stories of wandering. They, they, they don't have any place to settle down, not in 988. They don't have any land of their own. Doesn't want to be a Jew. 
Uh, for some reason, he doesn't like the Western Church either. But he sends his delegation to Constantinople, and his, the delegation goes into the Hagia Sophia. And the report back to Prince Vladimir is that we did not know whether we were in heaven or on earth when we walked into the Hagia Sophia. Okay. Does your church give people a taste of heaven? Not just in what happens there. It should certainly give them a taste of heaven in what happens there. But do they walk in? and have any sense that this is a place that anticipates the glory of the new creation. Okay. Um, I think they should. Um, and to get back to my original thesis, which I'll expand on when I take this up in the afternoon, that liturgical space is not just a foretaste of that, uh, of that eventual new creation, but it's already an accomplishment of that new creation. Because what's happening when you take stone and... Um, mortar and whatever else you go put into your, into your church and put up pillars and uh, perhaps create uh, uh, designs on the walls and whatever you're doing, you know, stained glass. You are using the things of the creation and devoting them to uh, the worship of God. You're bringing them to their telos, their, their end, in the liturgy. And the creation of liturgical space is not just a template and a foreshadowing of a future but it already accomplishes that future in some small part because you're already devoting the things of this world to the worship of God. Okay, so the, that, uh, the, the creation is coming into, uh, the, in, into the liturgy and being transformed and reaching its telos. And by the same token, we'll talk more about this, in some way the surrounding culture is being brought in because you have uh, people who have certain skills and there are certain materials available to you to make a church. Uh, and there are certain kinds of artistic designs that uh, are going to be reflected, will be reflected, but transformed by being included in liturgical space. Okay. Um, we'll take a break. I will begin the discussion section with a, another uh, opportunity to answer, to talk about the, any questions you have, and then we'll go into some of the readings. But uh, take about 15 minutes, refresh your coffee, stretch, and... Uh, Come back about, looks about uh, five after the hour.